Welcome to the chapel this morning. Shalom Aleichem. Aleichem Shalom. If you stumbled in here this morning, you probably wonder what in the world did I stumble into. We are not a Messianic congregation, uh, just as during the Christmas season we play a lot of Christmas music leading up to the celebration of the birth of our Savior. Well, this particular holiday that we're approaching is what? Passover, Passover Resurrection Sunday, Pesach, or Peshka in the Greek text, but it is not Eshtar. It's not Eshtar. <laughs> Most people don't understand that the origin of the word Easter comes from the worship of the pagan goddess Eshtar. And in the wor worship of Eshtarte, they would decorate eggs because it spoke of the fertility that they were worshiping. They would revere the rabbit because it was so prolific. And this is during the Babylonian period, 500 years. Uh, actually, uh, about 500, 600 years before the birth of Christ. But, you know, most people don't realize that. And unfortunately, most Gentile Christians today refer to this holiday as Easter. And what an offense that must be to God our Father and His Son and the Holy Spirit that we would refer to Pesach, Passover, as Easter, referencing a goddess Ishtar. And most people, after their Easter celebrations, go home, and what do they have? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing could be more. <laughs> well, we, we like to uh, inform you of the Jewishness, the Israelology of the Bible, you see. The church has not replaced Israel, contrary to common belief in replacement theology today, unfortunately. The church has not replaced Israel. The promises that God made to Israel are for Israel. And we have been a wild branch that has been grafted in to the true tree, right? The fig tree, Israel. When he speaks of the olive tree being Israel, that speaks of what, Ed? The Holy Spirit, spiritual Israel. So the fig tree, figuratively in the scripture, speaks of physical Israel. When you see the olive tree referencing as Israel in a figurative sense, it's speaking of spiritual Israel. And so as we've been going through the book of Acts, we're in chapter 2, and I think we might finish the chapter this morning. But what was birthed on this celebration of Shavuot? Messianic Judaism. Make no mistake about that. You see, everybody says, everybody will say that you ask out there in the Gentile world, they'll say, oh, Pentecost, that's when the church was birthed. No, that's when Messianic Judaism was birthed, and the church has been grafted in, come into that, because of the national rejection of Jesus by Israel, the gospel, the truth, salvation, went to the Gentiles. But it was always God's plan. It was always his intention, wasn't it? Yeah. But Jesus himself said that he won't return to Israel until Israel says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But we now say what? Blessed be the Lord our God. Isn't that wonderful? That the God of Israel has become our God. The Lord of Israel become our Lord. The Messiah, the Savior of Israel become our Savior. But don't for a moment think that God has put aside his people Israel or forsaken them. Paul would say, perish the thought. May it never be. Hmm? 
And so during this time of the year, we play a lot of Hebraic praise and worship because we're leading up to the celebration of Pesach or Passover. And on the first Passover, way back when, when the children of Jacob were taken out of Egypt in that exodus, what was birthed? The nation of Israel was birthed. Pesach, Passover. But we know that the greater meaning of Passover was when the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Pesach of God, would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And so we were birthed as well on Pentecost. Now the next feast in the seven major feasts of Israel, the spring of the year you have Passover, first fruit, no, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. That, they lumped that together and they call that the Passover week. But 50 days later, you have Shavuot, or Pentecost, or how do the Jews refer to it? The Feast of Revelation. Why? Because they're commemorating the giving of the law. When Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, it was on Shavuot, or Pentecost. Now, they don't refer to it as Pentecost. The Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, or Feast of Revelation, where God was revealing his truth, his moral and pure ethic. Purity, moral and ethical purity to his people. And that was the standard that has to be met in order for you to approach God, to be one with God. And who can meet that standard? For by the law, no flesh shall be saved. For the law brings forth... Oh, but we've been learning that the Spirit brings forth life. Life, yeah. So, the Jews celebrate Passover, or Passover as the birth of the nation. Pentecost... The revelation of God to his people. And then what's the next major feast at the spring of the year? Tabernacles. And his name should be called Emmanuel, God with us, right? He's dwelling with his people. And every reason to believe that Jesus was birthed on, on tabernacles. And I believe he's going to return on tabernacles. But nonetheless, from a Jewish understanding, from a Jewish mindset, Pesach was their birth, Pentecost was the revelation of the God that they worship, and then tabernacles, going into the promised land, dwelling with the Lord forever and ever and ever. And that's the way you need to understand that, you see? So here at the chapel, if you're new here, we try to bring out an understanding of the Jewishness of our faith. We've been grafted into Messianic Judaism. We haven't overshadowed them in any way. No. But thankfully, God has brought us in to an understanding of that. And that's my attempt, is to get you to understand that so you can share that with the world out there. Because what else is growing besides the understanding and the false doctrine of replacement theology? What comes along with that? Anti-Semitism Anti is swelling, beloved. It is such a curse. There is no reason in the world for any believer to ever have a prejudice against the Jewish people, against Israel in any way. Paul would write to us and tell us we owe them a great debt of love because through them, God has revealed himself to the world. Through them, God has revealed the salvation that he would bring into all the world, anyone who would repent and believe. And we are so thankful for that, aren't we? As we've been going through the book of Acts, we uh, saw that who was writing to whom? 
Luke, Luke, the only Gentile, the only Goyem in the Bible. How many, how many authors are there of the scriptures? Forty. Forty. But only one is a Gentile. That was Luke, the physician, right? And so he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. When did he write the Gospel of Luke? Chapter 24. Go there. Acts 24. Yeah. 2429. There's no 29. <laughs> what, did I, what did I write down here? Let me see, you know. Only the Lord is infallible, right? Well, nonetheless, it tells us that he dwelt two full years in Jerusalem while Paul was imprisoned. Thank you. What is it? 37. 20? 27. 27. Okay, Acts 24, 27. Do I have it right? Thank you so much for instructing me. You're such a, yeah, here it is. But after two years, Potius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix wanting to do the Jews a favor left Paul bound. So this was when Paul was first going through his Roman imprisonment, and he was there in Jerusalem in prison for two years, and that's when Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, because he was writing it for a defense of Christianity and a defense for Paul as he would go to court before the Roman officials. And who gave him all of his information when he wrote the Gospel of Luke, primary source? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Amazing. Now, when did he write the book of Acts? Let me see if I've got that straight. Let's go. <laughs> uh, what did I jot down here? Uh, 2830. Last chapter of the book of Acts. Verse 30. Everybody there? 2830. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Where was he in that rented house for two full years? Rome. So in two years during his imprisonment in Jerusalem, Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, primary source being Mary. But now Paul was transferred to Rome. He was imprisoned in his own rented house for two years. And what did Luke pen then? The book of Acts. The book of Acts. Now, what was Paul preaching? It, it tells us in the verse. The kingdom of God. Now, now, as we were going through chapter 1, the disciples asked Jesus, will you at this time bring the kingdom to Israel? And I said, it's very important for you to understand the kingdom program of God or, or how God has determined when you're reading the scriptures, this process or progress of the kingdom of God. First, there is the universal kingdom, and we understand that, that God reigns everywhere and at all time. The universal kingdom is that God reigns everywhere and at all time, and aren't we glad for that? Oh, yes. Then we said there is the spiritual kingdom, and the spiritual kingdom is comprised of all of those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. No Holy Spirit, no salvation. No salvation, you're not part of that spiritual kingdom. The spiritual kingdom are those who embrace the truth, both Old Testament, New Testament, way in which you would receive righteousness through believing in the Old Testament, believing in the promises of God yet to come, 
right? In the New Testament, believing that the promise of God has come, the salvation that would come through the Savior, through the Messiah, the reception of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the repentance, the remission of our sins by repentance and believing in him. Wow, what was that? I assure you, it wasn't gas. <laughs> so then you had the theocratic kingdom. And the theocratic kingdom was God reigning through his mediatorial representatives. And at first it was Moses and Joshua, the judges. But then after the judges, the last judge being Samuel, he anointed King Saul, and began the period of the monarchy. But the monarchy ended. Who was the last king of Israel, of Judah? Zedekiah. Zedekiah. That ended the theocratic kingdom. The theocratic kingdom began with Moses, ended with Zedekiah. I want you to understand all of this. So as you're reading, when you read the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and who's the only writer that speaks of it as the kingdom of heaven? Matthew. And why did Matthew do that? understanding the Jewish sensitivities that the, he was writing to the Jew. Matthew's purpose for writing the gospel was he was writing to the Jews to prove that Jesus was Messiah, the Messiah of Israel. And therefore, he would never try to attempt to use the name of God. He would just say the kingdom of heaven, not to offend the Jews that he was trying to convince Jesus was their Messiah. But nevertheless, the theocratic kingdom ended with Zedekiah. And then there was a kingdom spoken of only in the New Testament that no one in the Old Testament understood. All the four, four of the kingdom programs of God were all in the Old Testament. Some explicit, some implicit. But in the New Testament, there's a kingdom that was never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's the kingdom that we're in right now. And what is that? The mystery kingdom. Because as Jesus began to teach in parables, his disciples came to him and said, Lord, Lord, why are you teaching these people in parables? They're not getting it now. He said, because it's for you. It's been given to you to understand the mysterion, the mysteries of the kingdom, the mystery kingdom of God. And then he began to teach a series of parables, for the kingdom of God is like unto, etc., etc., etc. And we know that there's one word today that will describe the mystery kingdom that is at present. And what's that word? Christendom. Thank you. Christendom. Right? Unfortunately, many within Christendom express exactly what Jesus taught in those parables, that there would be true believers and there would be make-believers. There would be a true doctrine of God and there would be false doctrine. There would be true growth of his church, his body, the body of Christ, and then there would be this false growth, this monstrosity that would grow. And that's the mystery kingdom that we're in right now. Now, the last and final kingdom is which? Messianic millennial kingdom. With the birth of Messianic Judaism at Pentecost, we can now look forward and see there's coming a time very soon when the church age will be over. This dispensation we call the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. That's what we're in right now from the Babylonian captivity of Israel, 586 BC, when it was finally destroyed. And they were carried away into captivity until this very day. Israel has been under the times of the Gentiles, where Gentile powers have controlled the area of Palestine, the area of Israel. But there is coming a day when God's going to establish his covenant once again 
because God's the covenant keeper, we're not. Is that true? Yeah, and God's into his covenants with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he's, gonna, he's a covenant-keeping God, as I said, and he's going to keep covenant because of the fathers of Israel. And when he does, he's going to begin to establish his messianic millennial kingdom. And when will that begin? The rapture of the church. And when does it end? Yeah, the at the end of the millennial reign, the thousand years, because predominantly the thousand years, the earth is being repopulated by Jews. Now, after that, the eternal, universal, spiritual kingdom where we dwell with God in love and in joy and in peace forever and ever and ever without end. Isn't that good news? Yeah. So, as we moved into chapter 2, we saw that the promise that the Father had made through Jesus, Jesus giving that promise to his disciples to carry, carry in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father has been received, and the promise of the Father is not just the reception of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father is the remission of your sins, the promise of the Father is salvation, that you would be saved, that you would belong to the Lord and be his forever. Once saved, always saved. I believe that with all my heart, no doubt. And so as Peter is preaching to them, he got up because they thought when the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them, how many were there in the upper room? 120. And who were they? Devout Jewish men from all over the known world at that time. Why? Because for every Jewish male within a certain proximity to Jerusalem had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem on every one of the three major feast days. Pesach, Passover, Shavuot, which was Pentecost, and Sukkot, which is tabernacles. So at this time, Israel had swollen in population because of all of these Jews making a pilgrimage to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. 120 Jews in the upper room, Jewish men from all over the known world, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, the promise of the Father that Jesus had made, and what was birthed that day was Messianic Judaism. Please understand that. It's unfortunate the way the Gentile church has written out the history of Israel. Many, many, many contemporary teachers, Andy Stanley, Brian Broderson, many of these contemporary upstarts have told their congregations to cut off the Old Testament, stop bothering with Bible prophecy, stop bothering with the subject of Israel, and just focus on the Christology of the New Testament. Nothing could be more detrimental to your understanding of the Bible and your maturity than to believe that nonsense. Two major subjects of the Bible. Jesus, of course. Every one of the 66 books you'll find Jesus. And what's the second major subject? Israel. How many times is Jerusalem mentioned in the scriptures? Over 600 times, beloved. So you should know something about the Jewishness of the faith that you embrace, the Israelogy of the scriptures you say you believe. Amen? Yeah. So as Peter is describing for them what had taken place, let's go back, look at chapter 2 of Acts. They thought they were drunk. And he said, no, these aren't drunk as you suppose. 
It's only the nine, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, third hour of the day. And he began to explain to them that this is that which was spoken of in the scriptures. This is Joel, what Joel had prophesied in chapter 2, but it's not the complete fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, it's a partial fulfillment. And as I said to you before, with a lot of Bible prophecy, you'll have a near fulfillment uh, and, and then a farther, a long-range fulfillment of a Bible prophecy, and so it is with Joel chapter 2. But Peter was able to say, this is that. Now, anything we believe and anything we practice, we need to be able to point to the scriptures and say, this is that, Right? And so as he is sharing with these men, he stood up and shared with them how they had killed, murdered, crucified their own Messiah. But the proof of everything that Peter was talking about and that Jesus was the fulfillment of these things, first of all, that first proof he offered was there in verse 17 when he recites Psalm 16, which talks about the fact that the, uh, well, that's the... Uh, text in Joel chapter 2, uh, and, but if you go back further into the text, into verse 25, he talks about David in verse, in, or excuse me, quoting Psalm 16, that David had shared through the spirit of prophecy that the Holy One would not see corruption. And he couldn't possibly have been talking about himself. Why, does Peter point out? His tomb is with us, and his bones are still in there in the tomb. David hasn't risen from the dead, but one greater than the David, one of the line of David, he would raise from the dead, and so Jesus did. That was the first proof, as we looked at that last week when we were together. The second proof we found in the verse 32, and what was that? All the apostles were witnesses of the resurrection. In order to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you had to have been one who had witnessed the ministry of Jesus from his baptism in the Jordan by the Baptist to his ascension into heaven. So he said, we were witnesses of these things and the resurrection. And what was the third proof? The third proof was the fulfillment of the promise of the Father that the Holy Spirit had come upon them at that moment at Pentecost. And then the last proof he offered was there in verse 34. And what was that? The ascension, the ascension of Jesus Christ and then the reception of the Holy Spirit validated in everything that Jesus said with regard to what he would do in the fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies at that point. And so when we had finished there, Peter then said, verse 36 of chapter 2, therefore let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Kurios, this is a word that's commonly used for God the Father. So Jesus, uh, Peter is saying that Jesus and God the Father are one and Christ, Christos, the Messiah. The Christos is simply the Greek translation of Mashiach, or Messiah. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What did that word mean? They were stabbed in the heart, remember? Yeah, we gave it, right? They were cut to the heart when Peter had said this, that they crucified their own Messiah, and said to Peter and the other apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now this was a voice of what? desperation. They, can you imagine, can you imagine being an Israelite then, recognizing you've been waiting all of these years, all of these centuries for the promise that God had made that the Messiah would come. Deuteronomy chapter 18 where Moses said, there's another one coming like unto myself, but a greater prophet than I, the one who would be the salvation of Israel, the savior of the world. And now that was fulfilled and they missed the event. And they crucified their own Messiah? Can you imagine? Cut to the heart. I'm sure they were all thinking, there's no hope for us. 
Oh, God is so merciful, isn't he? Yeah. You like Ezekiel? We've been going through Ezekiel on Wednesday nights. My favorite chapter in all of Ezekiel, you know what it is? Chapter 16. Why? God goes to great length to describe that Israel is a harlot committing spiritual adultery. And at the end of it all, these indictments against Israel, he said, yet I will give you atonement. Aren't you glad? Which of us have not been committing spiritual adultery before your salvation experience, denying the Lord who bought you, who gave you life and breath? Worst sin that we could ever commit is being so ungrateful, not even acknowledging God, considering him as being completely irrelevant to our life. Yet in all of that mountain of sin that every one of us participated in, he doesn't offer us atonement. That was a temporary covering in the Old Testament. What does he offer us? The complete remission of our sins. As far removed as the east is from the west. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. That's the promise that God had kept. Yes, and they were cut to the heart, and they cried out, what must we do? And Peter said to them, verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that gift, as I said, was not just the reception of the Holy Spirit in their heart to empower them to be obedient to the will and word of God, but it was a remission of their sins, and it was a gift of everlasting, eternal, age-abiding life. Life without end. I can't wait. Can you? Yeah. Mm. For the promise is to you. To you were those who were there that day, the 120, and those who would be who would receive the truth of what Peter was saying and be saved. The promise is to you and to your descendants. Yeah, yesterday at the men's study, we were talking about uh, introduction to 2 Timothy. And so we were talking about how uh, Paul had a pure conscience, as did his forefathers, a continuation of faith in his legacy. They were, his forefathers were believing the promises of God, of the Messiah to come, and then the appropriate way in which to approach God through the sacrificial system of Leviticus. But then Paul, realizing that the fulfillment of all of those things, which are simply a sign symbol type, Jesus was the substance of reality. And then speaking to young Timothy, he said, I know that you stir up the gift and the faith that is within you, young Timothy, that was also in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. That wonderful legacy of faith, a continuation of faith. And so he's saying this promise to those 120 Jews is not only to you and not only to those who are hearing him, he said, but to your children and your children's children. Isn't that a one? Now that promise can be ours today too, can it? I'm the first generation born again of Ariali, my family. First. But we were talking with some of the fellows. Some of the fellows are four, four generations believers. Praise God. What happened to us? As I pointed out to you before, there was a time when the whole world knew this wonderful, gracious God, creator, savior of the world. You know, that family, eight people got off that boat, right? We call the boat the ark, the ark, the ark of salvation. And those three boys, they started to repopulate the earth with their wives. What were their names? 
that, and so now there's a new beginning. They stepped out, 17th day of Nizan. Stepped out, new world. Stepped out, new opportunity. You know, new beginning, 17th day of Nizan. The ark rested. Everyone knows the Lord. His graciousness, his love, his mercy, his compassion. And everyone from there on followed the Lord. Is that right? <laughs> Unfortunately not. But God so loved the world that he gave. And as we continue on into Acts, we're going to see that in, in chapter 8, one of the sons of Ham are saved. What's, who was that? The Ethiopian eunuch. In chapter 9, one of the sons of Shem was saved. Who's that? The Apostle Paul. In chapter 10, one of the sons of Japheth was saved, Mike. Who's that? Cornelius of the Italian regiment. <laughs> God so loved the world. So listen, there was a time when all the world, it should have been that, that for all succeeding generations, should have been worshiping, knowing, and loving the Lord. What's happened? How is it we so easily have forsaken, walked away from the Lord? How is it that this nation that was birthed with such promise, such potential, such hope, look at where we are today. More people believe in UFOs than in Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers. Did you know that? 80% of the professing church, they're professing, not possessing, but 80% of the professing church, when asked the question, can good people of other faiths go to heaven? What's the answer? Is that doctrinal? Is that biblical? Is that orthodox? You can't believe that and be saved, beloved. No, no. So what's happened, unfortunately? And Paul, or Peter, records for them. He says, not only for you, this promise of God, of the Holy Spirit, of salvation, and remission of your sins, but it's to you, it's to your children, and to who else? All who are afar off. And who might that be? Oh, that's us. Listen, that's us. That's me. I was afar off. Weren't you? And look, and I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't searching for God. I wasn't running after God. But God sought me, and God sought you. No one is saved because innate within them, they're seeking God. God puts that in you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of your own, but a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? Isn't that right? The grace gift, the charismata of God in giving you the faith to believe. So that's what you need to pray for your unsaved loved ones, that God would give you the grace gift of faith to believe. Open up your mind and your heart to the truth, the reality of that Jesus loves you more than anyone will ever love you, more than you could possibly imagine. For you and those who are afar off, he said, to your children and those who are far off, and as many as the Lord your God will call. God calls us, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Now, I think that's where we ended up last week. Is that right? Yeah, yeah we talked about that faith is by from Christ alone. We talked about the, the five uh, solas of the Reformation. You remember what they were? Hmm? Sola Scriptore, the Scriptures alone, through Sola Gate, through grace alone, through Sola Fide, through faith alone, Sola Christos in Christ alone, Sola De Gloria, to the glory of God alone. The Scriptures declare that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is their salvation to the glory of God alone. 
not of man, right? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, as John would record. Aren't you glad? <laughs> and, and if it's God who has saved you, then who takes responsibility to keep you in that condition? God does. Please understand that. I am so thankful for his saving grace, and I am equally thankful for his keeping grace. God has kept me these 43 years. I haven't kept myself. And I am just so thankful. So thankful. Well, the church has been birthed. Messianic uh, Judaism has been birthed. Uh, there's a spiritual and a practical unity that comes as a result of being in the family of God, and that's what Luke is going to record for us next, the experience of the early church. Now, this should be the, the marks of a true church. And these are not extraordinary. These are ordinary marks to mark out those who would just love the Lord their God and serve him quietly, humbly surrendered and yield to the purposes of God and working out the purposes of God, their maturity in Christ in a very practical way by maintaining certain disciplines certain foundational truths, certain marks here. He says, now, verse 40, he says, now, with many other words, he testified, and he exhorted them. This word testified, he's, he's warning them. The Greek word for exhortation is perkaletos. He's coming alongside and trying to encourage them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. If that was a perverse generation, then what do we have today? An abomination, a wicked generation for certain. You hear about the schoolboy in a Catholic school in Canada who had a debate with his class and his teacher on the fact that God has only created two genders. He created them both male and female, right? XXXY. You can't change your chromosomes, can you? You can mutilate your body. You can take all the farmer you want all the pharmaceuticals, but you're not going to change your chromosomes. Who you are who's, is who you are, and who determined that? So this is just an offense, son. It's a de denial. It's a rebellion against God's authority. But nonetheless, he presented his case, and he, he, he was a very well-spoken young man. And what did, how did the school respond? Because he won the debate. They expelled him from school. They told him he couldn't come to school there anymore. This is in Canada. This is our neighbor to the north. What's, what's happening in the north is coming here. And, and so he, he went back to school. He wanted to go, he, I want to be educated. Why should I be prevented from entering into this school system that I belong to? And they arrested him. Can you imagine? Unbelievable what we're facing today. Hmm. Perverse generation then, wicked and abomination now. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Now, that's the result of salvation. Does baptism save you? No, we talked about that when Peter made the statement, repent and be baptized and believe. And we talked about the construction of the Greek grammar here, how the repent and, and believing went together, but baptism was separate from that. It means that after, subsequent to your salvation, you would be baptized. Now, why do you have to be baptized? Obedience. If you want to live an obedient life to Christ, then he commands that when you believe that you should show the world that you believe through your public baptism. Now then, it was a very risky thing to do. 
You were going to be a marked individual if you were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because now you were not only offense to Rome, you were an offense to Hebraic Judaism. Who were the real enemies of Jesus? The Pharisees, the Sadducees. Who really instigated Rome to arrest Paul and do the things? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religionists, right? But baptism was an outward display of an inward change that already occurred. Baptism doesn't save you. Oh, there is a baptismo that does save you. What's, what's that baptismo? The Holy Spirit. Right, that baptismal is the Holy Spirit. The, when the Holy Spirit comes upon your life and enters in you, he's yours now and forever, never to leave you nor forsake you. He will be with you even unto the end of the age. If you have the Holy Spirit this morning, isn't that wonderful? What a safe pillow to lay your head on. It means no matter what, what happens in this life, you're secure. We all look for security, don't we? And you can never be more secure than when you're in the Lord. And the Lord is in you. Hmm? Perverse generation, but those who gladly received his word, and that really uh, describes the early church as joy, gladness. After we walk with the Lord for a certain period of time, there's a tendency to take what he's given us for granted and not be so joyful anymore, not be so glad, not be so uh, ecstatic about our salvation. But it's good for you. To contemplate your salvation. Been to the doctor lately? What's the first question they ask you? Are you depressed? I say, am I depressed? I'm saved. Do you understand? I've been rescued. Soteria. You know what that word means, young lady? That means I've been rescued from the wrath of God. I've been rescued from eternal death. I am a saved man. How can I be depressed? <laughs> Heaven is my home, and that's where I'm going to end up. No matter what you tell me. <laughs> Isn't that true? Isn't that true, one? Yep, yep. And let me tell you something. Nobody gets out of here alive. You don't. But what happens after that? Oh, that's, that's what's paramount concern, isn't it? Yeah, no, we should never be depressed. We should be filled with such joy and such thanksgiving. What brings true joy? into the life of an individual, any of us. True contentment, joy, peace, happiness, subtleness of mind, of heart, is having that vertical relationship, being everything it should be. Now, as much as you know, you're surrendered. You have a pure conscience before God. Now, there are things that the Holy Spirit is going to be continually working on in your life, and as he points those out, just, just surrender them, just submit. Because we're all in the process of changing, aren't we? You know, I'm not the man you married 14 years ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I think I'm a better man. Yeah, better man. And you're a better woman. Yeah, in Jesus. And so we're always in this process of change, right? And the Holy Spirit puts his finger on that area that he would like to change in your life. And when he does, all you have to do is surrender. Okay, Lord, I give up. I tap out. And then he begins to make that change. And it's wonderful. But true joy, peace, happiness, contentment, 
Wholeness of mind, body, soul, and spirit happens as we're in that right relationship vertically. And then when we're in that right relationship vertically, what happens to the horizontal relationships? They're everything what they need to be. Why? Because I'm, I'm submitted to God. And if I'm submitted to God, I'm going to be everything that anyone in this life needs me to be, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not. I can't be held responsible for their reaction, right? But I can be held responsible for my reaction, reaction. Amen? All filled with gladness, joy. And they received the word and were baptized. And that day, about how many? 3,000 were added to them, added to the 120. So there's 3,000 that were added. Now, of the 3,000, how many you think were legitimate? 3,000. <laughs> Who's doing the math here? No, the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, the Holy Spirit came upon 3,000. There's 3,000 genuine, sincere, honest-to-God <laughs> believers. Not like Christendom. Not like the mystery kingdom. Unfortunately, I, I've shared with you before my testimony. I came down here from New York in 1989, working for General Electric at the time. Thought I was coming into the Promised Land. Crossed the Mason-Dixon Line. Thought I crossed the Jordan, you know. <laughs> and then I found out that, 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 wow, everybody's a Christian here. Everybody's a Christian. Everybody's a believer. I was listening with my ears. My ears will deceive me, right? Wrong thing to do. Because in New York, where I come from, if somebody claimed to be a born-again believer, they were. It wasn't popular up there. It wasn't cultural. Okay? It was countercultural to declare your salvation, your love for Jesus. But here, everybody says they're a Christian. Until I began to listen, not with my ears, but listen with my... And beloved, that's what you need to do. Don't believe anything I or anybody else tells you. When it comes to the Bible, you search the scriptures. When it comes to the Israelology of the Bible and these new things that I'll teach you, you, you find out if these things are so or not. And then you decide whether you're going to follow the truth or the lie. What you're uncomfortable with or what you're comfortable with, right? But when you listen with your eyes, what I've discovered is that the, a number of true believers drops significantly. What percentage of the church here in the West, in the United States in particular, what percentage obeys the Lord in the tithe? Two percent. Relax. We're not going to pass around any chicken buckets. We don't even take an offering here. This is truly a faith ministry. Where God guides, God provides. He opens up the hearts of those who would give to support this ministry. We don't ask for funds. Never did, never will. But God says, I want you to give me the tithe. Why? He needs your money? No. Who's being tested? You are. Now, God already knows whether you're going to pass the test or not, but it's just showing who's genuine and who's not. 2%. 2% of the church actually shares their faith on a regular basis out there with the world. They're not ashamed. They're not embarrassed. Not embarrassed of Paul or Peter, of the Bible or of Jesus. Or the way of salvation. There's only about one way. Although 80% would say there's more ways, more ways than one. Not so. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one can come to the Father except by me, in me, through me. Who said that? Yes. Do you believe that? Yes. Do you tell them that? Yes. 
Why are so many left so comfortable in their lostness where we're accommodating their error? Shouldn't be. No, these 3,000 are saved. And let's see what their practice is after that. Oh, by the way, how many, how many were saved with the giving of the law? None. <laughs> Zero. Mount Sinai, you go back to Exodus, with the giving of the law, for the law brings forth death, for by the law no man can be saved, no flesh can be saved. And with the giving of the law, the law, the Ten Commandments, external, outside of the individual, here it is, do it. Yeah, the Nike commercial, just do it, right? Can you? Did they succeed? No, no. No one could live to the law, and the law brought forth death. 3,000 died on Pentecost with the reception of the law, the enlightenment of God's moral and ethical purity. And he said, this is the standard. Walk in it. Who can do that? Now, a different Pentecost, a different Shavuot, a different revelation that the Holy Spirit of God the promise of God, the person of Jesus himself would dwell within you. And now the law isn't written on tablets of stone externally. Now, Jeremiah 31, 31 is complete, that the law is written where? On your heart. Changes everything. Now, you remember, you remember what it was like before you were saved? Trying to live a decent life? You couldn't. And then afterwards... It became so easy. These things just dropped off. It's just obeying the Lord, just walking with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. You'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Have a mind of the Spirit. You won't have a mind of the flesh, etc., etc., etc. And then, and then the Holy Spirit within you causes all these things to happen. Why? Because the law is no longer written on stone. It's written in my heart. I want to love the Lord. I want to obey the Lord. I want to be everything that he's called me to be for his glory. Don't you? Now, the person of the Holy Spirit is the one who enables you to do that. Those 3,000 were genuine. They, with the giving and the reception of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 are saved. Yes. And they continued steadfastly. Okay, 3,000 souls are saved, and they continued steadfastly. This word could also be interpreted devoutly, earnestly. In the apostles' doctrine, first and foremost. Now, today, most Christians, you talk to them, they say doctrine's a dirty word. Why? Doctrine? Yes, it does. Do you know that doctrine is meant to divide? Paul, in his uh, thesis on grace in Romans, says uh, divisions must come. Why? To show those who are approved, those who really understand the doctrines of our God and are following the same, the doctrines of the apostles. And it's not the apostles' doctrines, the doctrines of our Christ. That's specifically how Paul talks about them. Not his doctrine, but the doctrines of Christ, the doctrines of our God. That salvation comes by no other name under heaven or on earth. Amen? Now, the problem today is we don't have enough people following the apostles' doctrine. Ordinary church, true church, genuine church. But, but what are they concerned about, first and foremost? That they are theologically, doctrinally correct in what they believe. Why? Because that determines their practice. You know, we say that orthodoxy, what's orthodoxy mean? 
Right thinking leads to orthopraxis. What's orthopraxis? Right living. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxis, right thinking, right living. And that's why they were so concerned. Well, look at the book of Thessalonians. Let's go to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I think I want to go. Go to First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, chapter one, please. The uh, distinguishing marks of a true church were displayed here in the church at Thessalonica. Let's pick it up, and uh, Paul gives his, his greeting. But let's pick it up in verse two of First Thessalonians, chapter one. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you, all, all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope, faith, hope, love. These three, right? In the Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy. Yeah, there's a denial, there's a suffering, there's a trial, there's a denial and a pain that'll come in following the Lord. Much affliction, but with joy. Why? Because a vertical relationship is right. Of the joy of the Holy Spirit, verse 7, so that you became examples in all Macedonia, Achaia, who believe... For from you the word of the Lord was sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Their reputation went far and wide of their faith, hope, and love. For your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols, serve the living God and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven." whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Yeah, they clung to the promise of God, and they were living a very godly life. They were obeying the apostles' doctrine and all of these other steps to foundational Christianity. So important, no imposters, much like the early church, those 3,000 that were saved, they were genuine, and the church there in Thessalonica, you know, you couldn't be an unbeliever and last very long in the church at Thessalonica because of the way the church was, the, the truth was being taught. When the truth is taught, when sound doctrine is preached and taught, it divides, it cuts asunder. The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword between what is fleshly and, and what is spiritual. What is heavenly? What is earthly? What is carnal? What is truly of the Lord? When you allow unbelievers to come in among you as a church and they perceive that they're one with you, we want unbelievers to come, don't we? But we want unbelievers to come and to hear the truth of God's word. The whole truth. So hope you got and then hopefully the conviction will come. Now, one or two things will happen as the conviction will come and there'll be a transformation of life as they repent and believe. 
and surrender their life. Or they will move on. That's what, that's what the gospel, that's what a true church and discipleship should do. But today, today we organize our churches and our church services so an unbeliever be comfortable. I had an unbelieving cousin who was going to a church here locally, a large, very large church, and he was going there for years. Unsaved man, very happy, very content. And Uncle Richard, or Cousin Richard, would talk to him all the time about the truth, but he'd shut me out. And I'd pray for him. And then one day he made a visit to the Billy Graham Library, and he called me up. He said, I, I think I finally understand what you're trying to tell me. I got saved. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, let me, let, let me tell you, this isn't new. Go with me to Revelation chapter 3. This trying to make your church seeker sensitive so that unbelievers will sit there comfortably. No, 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 no. The word of God should never make you comfortable. The word of God should always make you uncomfortable. The word of God is an offense to my flesh and it always has been, but it's food for my spirit. Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamos. Let's, let's go back for a minute in history. Uh, the church of Pergamos and what was taking place at Pergamos. What, where did that come from? Where did, what happened? What moved from one location to Pergamos? You remember? Your history? Okay, ancient history. Mystery Babylon. When the Babylonian Empire was destroyed by the Medes and the Persians, the Babylonian mystery system, the religious system of Babylon, did not die. It moved from Babylon to Pergamos. And then it went from Pergamos to Rome. Catholicism, Rome. So look at Jesus' letter to the church of Pergamos and what was taking place there. That's chapter 2, verse 12. Do you have a heading over verse 12? Compromising. The compromising church. That's right. That's right. That's, that's what we're living with today, unfortunately, beloved. That's why it's the mystery kingdom, the compromised church. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. What might that be? The word of God. The sharp two-edged sword is the word of God. Okay? Make no mistake about that. So it's, it's Jesus who has given you his word and expects us to know it, to do it, and to share it. You see. He who has a two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and I hold fast to my name and did not deny the faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Who's Antipas? We don't know. Jesus knows, but he's faithful. He, he was faithful unto death. There, at Pergamos. My faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells, verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. What's the doctrine of Balaam? Now, you know the story of Balaam. Balaam saw the Israelites moving into the promised land and, and who could defeat them. Their God was with them and great fear came upon him. So he went to the prophet, Balaam. Balak went to Balaam and said, curse these people for me. So he took them up to a high mountain and he offered all of these sacrifices and he couldn't curse them. He blessed them. He said, I can't do anything more than what God tells me to do. So he took them to another location and viewed the children of Israel there and cursed them from here. And three times and he failed to curse them. But he wanted what the king was going to offer Balaam. He wanted what Balak offered. 
And he said, I'll tell you what you do. Here's what you do. What did he tell them to do? Get your daughters to seduce them to sexual immorality. And then their God will curse them. Wow, what's new? What was there existing in the church of Pergamos? Fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, lesbians, those who practiced sexual immorality, and they were corrupting the church. Hmm, strange. What's happened today? Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 24, and God gave them over to what? A sexual revolution. Chapter 1, verse 24, he gave them over to a sexual revolution. That's what's happened to us in the 60s, 70s. Verse 26, same chapter, Romans 1, he gave them over to a homosexual revolution. Is that not what's happening today? Is this not insane? And then finally, chapter 1, verse 28, what did he give them over to? A reprobate mind. Can't even think straight any longer. And that's where we are today. Jill Biden gave the International Woman of Courage Award to who? A man. Hello. Jesus, please take me up. There's no intelligent life here anymore. Pergamos, look what it says now. The compromising church, allowing, accommodating sexual immorality that was so common among the pagans of their day. They hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. With what? What's going to judge those who are compromised? The Word of God. Jesus made it very, very clear. If you love me, you'll obey me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I command you to do? No, no, I'm, I'm not asking you to do it on your own. All you have to do is submit to me, pray the Holy Spirit, and I'll empower you to do the same. But you have to be willing. Jesus came to the pool of Shalom. Here's a man there, been crippled for how long? And, and Jesus walks up to him. What's the question he asks him? Why in the world did you ask him that? He's here. Because, listen to me. Because there are a lot of people who just like staying the victim, and they like their sin. They're precious, right? And they don't want to be healed from it. And you know, and God knows what that might be, right? But we don't want any area of our life not to be given over to the Holy Spirit to cleanse us, to sanctify us, to change us. But we're some were some, but such were some of us, right? But not any longer. We've been washed. We've been cleansed. We've been empowered. Oh, it's a shame what's happening today. The church today can be described as the Church of Pergamos. Not so much the Church of Thessalonica. 3,000 believers, true believers. And first and foremost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon your heart, He wants you in the Word of God. And He wants the Word of God in you. I don't read the Bible. The Bible reads me and tells me where I need to submit and ask God to change me. And He will. If you truly are a saved individual, you will have a hunger for God's word. You want to be among God's people. You want to be doing God's work, God's will, God's way. You understand that? If there's no hunger, if there's no thirst for the word of God, there's no reason to believe salvation's occurred. Who wrote this book? Who wrote this book? 
the Holy Spirit. Men were inspired of God, the Holy Spirit, to write the things that they wrote. If I write a book, I'll have my books on a book stand back there after service, and I'll autograph every copy, and I'll want you to read my book. And oh, by the way, if there's anything you don't understand, you call me, and I'll explain what I wrote. Wouldn't you do that? I'd do that. Well, that's precisely what the Holy Spirit does. He's the author of Scripture. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the Spirit of truth who will, who will guide you and mentor you and lead you into all truth. Is that not true? And then he is the interpreter of the Scripture. He'll help you understand it. Before I pick up the Scriptures, I always pray, God, please help me understand what I'm reading. Illuminate me more. Give me understanding more. Enlighten me, Lord. Help me to have eyes to see, ears to hear. There it is. And not only will, does he drive me to read his word, not only does he interpret the word, but then he allows me to apply it to my life and then share it with others. True, born-again individual, that's what's going to take place in their life. That's why they were so steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, in the truth of God's word. And the whole world is going to be judged according to that sharp two-edged sword, that sword that comes out of his mouth, the word of God. Do you understand that? Doesn't matter what other men think. Doesn't matter if the majority of the world is going to Sheol. You stand with God. You stand for the truth. And the truth is, in our world today, number one under attack is God only made two genders. And marriage is between one biological man and one biological woman until death do them part. Is that not true? Yeah. Yeah. Back to Acts 2. Did I say we were going to finish the chapter? I did say that, didn't I? Remaining steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and then in fellowship. What's the word fellowship for the Greek text? Koinonia. Now, this word koinonia is translated several different words in English throughout the New Testament. It can be fellowship. It could be contribution. It can be communion. It can be distribution. It can be to communicate. This fellowship that they had, it's so important that we have a communion, a fellowship. Now, what you're going to see is that they believed that the Lord was coming soon, and they sold everything they had. They put it into a common pot, and anybody who had need could draw out of that pot, but that was short-lived. But it wasn't socialism. That's what some would say. This is the first real experiment of socialism. No, no, no. It wasn't socialism. It wasn't communism. Why? They didn't divide it between the people, but it wasn't forced upon them, and this was voluntary. We'll see in chapter 5 we have a problem there <laughs> right away then. But anyway, it's voluntary, and they pooled all of the resources, and they met anyone's need who had a need at that time because they believed that the Lord was coming soon, and they would to gather together in communion, in fellowship, in koinonia, in partnership, in sharing, in communicating daily from house to house. The church is a gift from God, right? But the gift requires... The church is a gift from God, but it requires assembly. Remember you bought those gifts for your kids at Christmas? They required assembly? Okay? And you know, guys, we don't, I don't, you know, we don't need the instructions, right? And then we wonder why we have all these parts left over. The church is a gift of God, requires assembly. Where's the instruction book? Right here. Right here. And that's exactly what we're learning. Meaning steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, prayer, and the breaking of bread. 
But this fellowship, this koinonia, this, it is so, COVID has done such damage to the gathering together of the body of Christ. Now, the true body of Christ is still gathering together. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and of a sound mind. Right? And so we gather together, but many, many, many churches have not reached their pre-COVID population because people have found very comfortable to just go home, watch somebody on a television, some exalted preacher with their cup of coffee while they're in their pajamas. Why go to church? We're commanded to. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, even the more so as you see the day of the approach and the day of the Lord. Why? Because we draw off the strength of one another. I need you, and you need me. We need one another. And all those one another commands in the Bible cannot be fulfilled unless we have fellowship, communion. You know, you, you, a lot of you take for granted the fellowship that we have today, the communion. We're not going to finish the chapter this morning, but we will next week. But what I'd like to do is, I want James Sequoy to come up here for a minute. Come on up here, James. Because I, I thought of James immediately when we talked about fellowship and not, not, do not prevent the assembling of yourselves together. James, wh where, did, where did you come from? Tenerife. Where? Tenerife. And where's that? Tenerife. Um, off the coast of Morocco. Morocco. Africa. Oh. You were living the lifestyle of the rich and famous, weren't you? Yeah. yeah show me that video, Darren, of where James and Adele were living. Do you like to, how many like to go to the beach? I love the beach, you know? Twice a year I go to the beach, right? He was, you were living the life, weren't you? Living the dream. Living the dream. Yeah. Swimming, biking, yeah. huh? The business was taking care of itself. Skiing. It was a holiday every day, wasn't it? Every day. Every I, didn't, day. I didn't need a holiday. You didn't need a holiday. No, no, no. no. <laughs> you lived a vacation, yes, right? Absolutely. I just want to want you to see where James and Adele were living. It wasn't there. It wasn't there. No, that's where we live. That's a wrong video. That's where I live. That's where we are now. That's where we are right now. Okay. Oh, he's giving context. Oh, he's giving context. Okay. Oh, okay. Clever, isn't he? Yeah, isn't he clever? There's a wizard up there, you know. Look at that house. Wow. Now, how often did Donald Trump visit with you? No, just the one time. Just the one that time. That was enough. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> now, your, your home is... Overlooks the beach, right? Yep. Half yeah. a mile up. Half a mile up. Overlooking the ocean. Overlooking the ocean. That's the same table we still have. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, look, yeah, at yeah. That. look at that view. You were, you were living in paradise. That's the bedroom window. Oh, my. What a beautiful home, James. Yeah. That's the, that's the beach out there. Off the little terrace off the bedroom. Yeah. The Swimming pool. Man, you were living the dream, buddy. Lots of barbecues there. Oh, the barbecue, yeah. That's great. Like it, Lots like it. Lots of birthday parties with the kids. Little, another terrace. Wow. Gail, I think the house is still vacant. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. That's amazing. Oh, that's amazing. Beautiful. That's the ocean out there? Yep. You can see the horizon. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Oh, my. Climbed up that mountain. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Now, i got to ask you a question, James. Are you out of your mind? That's what everyone said. You gave all of that up to come here? Yeah, they said we were out of our minds. What caused sure. you to do that? Um, it was the Lord. 
the Lord. Yeah. And why would the Lord cause you to move here to South Carolina? On fellowship. A fellowship? Not for a job. No. Not for a job. You didn't have any fellowship out there? No. You not, had not meaningful. You had everything you wanted out there. Yeah, but nothing. But you had nothing? Nothing. What do you mean by that? Tell them what you mean by that. So we had the dream life, you know, skiing holidays south of France. Like I said, we didn't need a holiday. We'd cycle three days a week. I'd swim. We'd visit the other islands. Life was cheap. So no pressures, but we were missing one thing, which was fellowship, hmm. Christian fellowship. So we said goodbye to all that, left the security of a job, paid off house, and moved here and didn't know what we were going to do. So didn't have a job lined up. We didn't come and for a job. And you found us. And we found you eventually. Now eventually. You, now you have everything. Everything. But, Jesus but nothing. and his church. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, so try to put into words what fellowship means to you and Adele. Um, it's relational. So fellowship is like-minded believers who we're in relationship with on that level. Yeah. So if you try to go and live there, you might last a while, but then you'd, have, you'd realize it was nothing. You'd be empty. So. You're starving spiritually. Absolutely. And you can't do that online. Mm-mm. You can't do it online. You can't do it online. Say that again. You can't do it online. I did try. But you can't. <coughs> yeah, it doesn't work. Mm. No. Thank you, James. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. You know, when James was describing to me the lifestyle they were living in, the home he was in, and showed me this picture, I said, it had to be the Lord. It had to be the Lord to bring you here. Is that not true? And what, what brought him here? The hunger and the need for communion, for fellowship. Listen, for family. We're, we're just not a group of people gathered together as an audience. We're the people of God. We're the ecclesia. The ecclesia, that's interpreted the word church, is the sacred called out assembly. The people of God gathering together to have a communal meal from the Lord. A meal in his word. A, a meal enjoying and sharing the Lord in one another. Encouraging one another. Strengthening one another. Laughing with one another. Crying with one another. That's, that's what the richness of this fellowship, this koinonia is when we live together and dwell together as a family. And we're a family. Amen? Amen. Shall we stand?